0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss. There she is. <laughs> I hate that voice. Every, every time I record an episode, Alex complains, and she's going to do it again, that the first three minutes she has to because <laughs> it's me complaining about that awful woman. So, <laughs> right. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. The guys have gone out again and left me keys to the castle. So I decided to uh, try something different. And I have got uh, Kenneth Hall with me, who is a scholar, author, and classicist, whose previous works include The Ottoman Empire, The Fall of the Pagans and the Origins of Medieval Christianity, and Origins of Great Ancient Civilizations. But he's here today to talk about his new book, Empire of the Steps, Nomadic Tribes and Who Shaped Civilization. Kenneth, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, no, um, when when the email had popped into our into the collective inbox with nomadic people of the steps, like this isn't something we've covered in a long while. We should. This is definitely a subject that we should talk about. Um, it's quite, quite niche. Uh, hang on. What have I just done there? Um, OK, so let's start at the beginning. What do we know about the early history of the peoples who lived on the steps?
1: Well, it's a combination of archaeology and uh, historical linguistics, plus analogies to later better documented periods about steppe life. And as best we can tell from the archaeological record, it's closely connected with the um, invention of the wheel and the domestication of the horse as a um, beast of burden. Uh, The horses were probably originally domesticated for uh, winter food. Uh, The horses on the South Russian steppes uh, represented one of the largest uh, concentration of horses uh, in the world, say about 4500 BC. And it took a long time to breed the horses that we know today. The process wasn't completed till about 2000 BC. But in doing so, these early nomads um, gained an animal that would allow them to travel quickly to scout, uh, out areas for grasslands and water, uh, also to herd their animals, but above all to pull the no- mobile homes uh, that are the hallmark of steppe uh, pastoral pastoralism. That is, they would move from area to area uh, during the seasons to follow the water and grass patterns, and could sustain large herds of uh, cattle, sheep, goats, um, which provided the meat, um, uh, milk. Uh, and the fermented drink, which um, Mongols called kumish, which is fermented uh, mare's milk, uh, very alcoholic and very important in all sorts of ritual um, feastings. Uh, And uh, this pattern was perfected somewhere um, uh, on the South Russian steppes, uh, approximately, oh, say 36, 3800 BC, And contrary to our notions of um, invasions in the historical period, uh, the movement of nomads went from west to east because the first nomads were on the Russian steppes, and they uh, slowly moved east to bring their way of life to the central steppes, largely represented by Kazakhstan today, and then to cross the Altai Mountains into the eastern steppes, into Mongolia, and to bring that way of life there. Uh, So... um, Archaeology uh, allows us to reconstruct the daily life and also to get some sense of the patterns, the migrations. Uh, Then you have comparative linguistics in which these early nomads spoke uh, an Indo-European language. It's often designated Proto-Indo-European. It's the mother tongue of many of the languages from Ireland to India today. And the distribution of all of these uh, languages is, is... connected with early steppe movements, which essentially went from uh, west to east. Um, Somewhere around 2000 BC or shortly before, uh, there was a very uh, large scale migration or a series of migrations into Central Europe and Northern Europe that brought the Indo-European languages there. Uh, There had been an earlier migrations into the Balkans that brought the Hittite languages into what are now Turkey, uh, later the Greek language into the Greek Peninsula. Um, probably Armenia is an offshoot of uh, one of these uh, early Anatolian languages uh, that ended in uh, Eastern Anatolia in the Caucasus areas. So all of these migrations represented early step movements out of the core lands in um, South Russia. Uh, And those those migrations and language families are pretty well determined. We've been able to figure that out pretty pretty accurately. Unfortunately, we don't have written records. We don't have individuals we could talk to in any way or who speak to us through their writings. But we're at least able to get an idea of the world they lived in, some idea of the gods they worshipped, the type of life they endured on the steps, which is extremely difficult with extremes of temperatures between the winter and the summer, um, constant relentless movement for water, which is all important. Um, And the fact that nomads, when forced to, could move very quickly over great distances. Um, So that's that's how we learn about the earlier uh, nomads. And then we start getting writings by uh, historians of the sedentary civilizations uh, Herodotus, the father of history—at least that's what the Greeks would call him—and I would call him the same. He's the father of Western history. Um, less charitable people call him the father of lies, but that's 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 being a little too facetious for me. Uh, and I, I think know,
0: that's what Paulina falls into. She's not a fan of Herodotus. <laughs>
1: uh, Well, I'm a big fan of Herodotus, and he's proved to be more accurate than uh, his detractors, especially in the 19th century claim. And uh, he does like to tell good stories. Mm. And in that regard, he would be very similar to a Southern uh, fellow from the United States. And the attitude is, you have no business telling a story unless you improve it. And so he's... (laughs) Embroidering uh details that are sometimes a bit questionable, and um some of his stories about ancient Egypt are just uh just pure fun it's it's tourist language, it's tourist talk <laughs> uh, but uh, but he is observant and he he um spoke to a lot of eyewitnesses who knew the um nomads of his day in southern Russia whom he calls Scythians, and he gives very good reports about them. Uh, burial customs, uh, including human sacrifice and the sacrifice of horses. This persisted down to the Mongol age, um, uh, the patterns of movements, the uh, vast trains of uh, ox and horse-drawn carts across the uh, grasslands, burial practices. Um, and so his, um, his account is extremely useful. Uh, he also records the first war of a sedentary civilization against the nomads, and that is the Persian Empire that attempted to um, conquer these steps or at least chastise the Scythians. And of course, it, it ended in failure. Um, the great King Darius had to withdraw um, out of Europe, back into Asia. Um, this weakness um, was a signal to his Greek subjects to revolt, and Herodotus, Herodotus reports the Scythians were constantly sending messages uh, to the Greeks, you know, it's time to report against your uh, Persian oppressor. Uh, and, and that rebellion led to the wars uh, that ended at uh, the Battle of Salamis and uh, the significant defeat of the Persian Empire. Uh, the Scythians were, were part of the cause of that chain of events. Um, so they, they play a very important role uh, in the geopolitics of Eurasia, as well as the transmission of technology and uh, ideas uh, across the Eurasian steppes.
0: And yeah, they 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 also sent um, Darius the, the cryptic message of um, like a dead a dead frog, a dead bird, uh, and five arrows, and no one's no one's entirely certain what it meant. But
1: yeah, um, and, and the message read that um, I, I think unless you could leap like a frog or burrow into the ground like a hare. Uh, our arrows will seek you out and get you. Uh, and um, it's always dangerous advising a great king because they're prone to kill the messenger or the interpreter of a message, which is not um, um, optimistic, let us say. <laughs> so uh, I've often envisioned situations of um, um, who who was the messenger who informed... Um, King Darius of the defeat of his army at the Battle of Marathon, I certainly wouldn't want that guy's job. (laughs) (laughs) This is is a danger in all of these early monarchies. Well, even in modern dictators today, I could imagine. um, uh, One reads reports of how, um, you know, the quintessential dictator of all times, Adolf Hitler, would go into rages Whenever someone would point out reality to him uh, and um, that that's a problem of anyone in power uh, becoming um, uh, so insulated from reality. you live in your own fantasy world but uh, that aside uh, Darius learned very quickly that logistically he could not sustain a large army on the grasslands his men were not um able to endure that uh, without immense amount of supplies, which were essentially beyond the capacity of his empire. And he couldn't bring the nomads to a set battle where he could defeat them decisively. There's no conventional targets. There are no cities to capture. Uh, There isn't a a government offices. These were confederations that could quickly move. They would move their uh, women and children well out of the range of the enemy armies. Uh, because they're living on these mobile homes, and then the the cavalry would skirmish, uh, ambush, uh, fight these running battles, and just wear the enemy down. Usually, denying them uh, water water sources. Herodotus reports the poisoning of wells, which um, I'm, I'm sure um, was discouraging uh, for the uh, Persian army. They would chase these nomads over the steppes. Finally. Uh, uh, arrive at some water source and found that it had been polluted. Um, and under those circumstances, Darius just declared victory and withdrew. Um, <laughs> everyone knew what well a great king can't meet a, you yeah know, admit defeat. I mean that's <laughs> the does it has to be his subordinates who screwed up um, that but, oh, yes, but he personally so. commanded the the campaign, which was another mistake politically. Um, and um, And and so withdrew and it was a humiliating uh, retreat. And it was seen as such by many of his subjects. Um, Such defeats risk rebellion in a multinational empire. Um, And um, it was a difficult lesson to learn. Uh, Alexander the Great who encountered these same nomads out in Central Asia, his aims were much Uh, more uh, restricted. What he wanted to do was to control the flow of these people over his border. Uh, So he would set up forts to control and regulate markets. Uh, He carried out a strike north of the uh, Jaxartes River, where he um, defeated the nomads in a, a very clever trap, ambushing people who were expert at ambushing, and then recruited large numbers of these horse archers into his armies, which he happily marched off to India. Uh, and these are the ways you have to deal with these nomads. You, you, you have to come to terms with them. Uh, they depend very heavily on the markets of cities. They need to obtain foodstuffs, which they can't produce themselves. These would be dried fruits, uh, vegetables, uh, bread. Uh, and of course, grape wine is a, or, or beer is a very high uh, prestige commodity form. All sorts of manufactured goods that craftsmen could could devise, but the nomads themselves don't have the specialists. And so, if you give them access to these markets, you can um, dictate terms, uh, regulate the trade. You could allow some of them to settle as immigrants or recruit them as soldiers. That would relieve the population pressure off the steps because you're not forcing them into the situation. If they can't trade, they will raid. Um, mm-hmm. Alexander perfected that system. And the Chinese emperors um, uh, did the same. They, they came up with this... Um, uh, arrangement called the Five Baits. It was devised by the Han Emperors of China, uh, who are more or less the contemporaries with Imperial Rome. And they dealt with a nomadic group called the Nu, a very powerful confederation on the Mongolian steppes, one of our best documented cases. And they would provide a Chinese princess and hook these, um, uh, they would be known as the Chanyu, um, that would be the title of these rulers, um, Moto Chanyu was the founder of this um, confederation in the second century BC. And they would provide uh, with the princesses whole retinues of um, specialists, craftsmen, mu- musicians, lots of silk and fancy uh, products, which the ruler could hand out to his vassals. And he could boast that I am a uh, cousin to the emperor of China, which was the center of the world to these people. And um, it increased his own standing and provided um, all sorts of fancy prestige gifts to his uh, important supporters and foodstuffs and essential goods uh, to his population. Um, It also then allowed the Chinese emperor at a relatively low cost to defend his frontiers without the necessity of trying to send large armies north into Mongolia to try to seek out and destroy these nomads. Now, that changed with the emperor Wu Di, who decided to go to war with the nomads, um, and he died in the year 87 BC, and he framed a policy of um, um, these long columns uh, penetrating uh, into Mongolia, Uh, mutually supporting columns, converging on a uh, nomadic army and destroying them, uh, deporting large numbers of people and animals and waging a war that almost verged on genocidal. And in the end, um, his results were really mixed. Uh, He gained a number of victories at incredibly high costs. Uh, Thousands of animals and men died of exhaustion trying to fight these wars north of the, the Great Wall. And uh, ultimately, it was a strategic draw, in, in my opinion. Um, and so um, the, um, the nomads were extremely for, formidable foes. And that was true starting in the early Iron Age when they developed saddles so men would ride horses rather than um, ride chariots into battle. And on these horses, they were mounted with what is called a composite bow. It looks like half a figure eight, which is one of the most deadly missile weapons ever created before the advent of firearms. And these nomadic horsemen could skirmish, ambush, um, engage enemy from afar with no danger to themselves, and prove one of the most effective warriors of of the entire ancient and medieval world. Seldom were they ever defeated in battle. Yeah, but,
0: yeah they, they were, um, from the little bit I know about them, they are absolutely feared. So when the, I know we're going to get to them later, but when uh, the Golden Horde roll up through into um, to the European border, everyone's terrified that the Mongols could just smash right through Europe.
1: Yeah, and Matthew Paris, the uh, Anglo-Norman um, chronicler, was the one who said these people must come from Tartarus, which is the classical world for the word for the underworld, uh, and hence they got the name Tartars. You know, they, yeah. they've been released by the devil himself. Uh, uh, well, sitting comfortably in England, uh, far away from the Mongols, you could name them as such. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, had a lot of other names for these invaders, which were far less flattering, uh, because. Uh, they experienced the full fury of the what they call the Mongol yoke. And with the exception of um, uh, Novgorod and uh, Psukov in the far north, uh, the Mongols managed to capture and destroy every significant Russian uh, town um, in, in the campaign of Batu, the grandson of Genghis Khan, and then in 1242 invaded Europe Um, smashing, um, especially the Hungarian army, in in a battle that just um, sent the Europeans scrambling, oh my gosh, they'll be in Rome in no time. Um, uh, Actually, they had outrun their logistical train, but also they received news that the then great Khan, uh, Ogadai had passed away and Batu withdrew out of Europe, uh, because there was going to be a major election, and he was afraid that his political opponents uh, would gain control of the throne and and go after him. And so it was, to a large extent, the internal politics of the Mongol Empire that called a halt to their advance into Europe.
0: Um, yes, yeah, a, a lot of people call it one of the greatest what-ifs of European history.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I indulge some, some speculation about that, particularly... Uh, Frederick II, how he would have handled the Mongols. He he might have been able to oppose them, but um, the danger would be um, Frederick managed to alienate not only the Pope, but many of his fellow monarchs. <laughs> and you could find some alliance of the Italian communes and maybe even the papacy itself with the Mongols just to get rid of Frederick. <laughs> uh, yeah. He had the distinction of having a crusade preached against him. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> one of the most uh, colorful figures of the uh, 13th century, to say the least, uh, Stupor Mundi, um, uh, as he was called, um, his Latin title, uh, uh, a wonder of the world. Um <laughs> The, the Muslims actually liked him because he spoke Arabic and he knew of uh, Islamic philosophy and and religion and and the uh, the caliph of uh, or say the sultan of Egypt uh, gave Jerusalem back because of that uh, oh. you know, we we can give it back to him he's he's a respectable monarch anyway Jerusalem yeah. belonged to Al kamil he was actually belonged to a relative so he wasn't giving anything away he controlled. But uh, at the time when he re- received Jerusalem back in the Sixth Crusade, um, he was under excommunication. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, Frederick racked up quite a few excommunications in his career. Uh, so, at any event, uh, militarily, he might have been up to the job of facing a Mongol. Um, army. On the other hand, uh, politically, uh, he may have found a a large number of his uh, European contemporaries in the Mongol ranks uh, uh, um, spoiling to get even with him. (laughs) Uh, And if so, that would have been not too dissimilar from Kublai Khan's conquest of China, which in order to conquer China, Kublai Khan had to depart from the usual massacres of, of large numbers of civilians uh, to terrorize the opponents and to hire uh, lots of Chinese infantry and launch on the Yangtze River and its tributaries a Chinese fleet. And uh, so in many ways, Kublai Khan conquered China with a, a Chinese army and a Chinese flotilla. Uh, and there were a lot of Mongolian you know cavalry thrown in as well. But the Mongolian cavalry was not going to operate very successfully in the rice paddies and the hot weather of southern China. Uh, to conquer China required a complete um, change of um, um, military um, organization and the types of soldiers you needed, and Ku Klux uh, very adeptly did so and won over many of the officers of the Song Dynasty who were just fed up with the incompetence, of the Supreme Court and and saw Kublai Khan as, as an alternative. Uh, and so he was both successful on the political front as well as the military front and achieved what no other nomadic uh, ruler ever achieved. And that was the, the conquest of all of China. Um, and in writing the book, I um, gained immense admi- admiration for Kublai Khan. Um, we were talking before the show, how you knew of Kublai Khan before, Genghis Khan, which is common in the West because of Marco Polo. (laughs) Polo traveled to the court and wrote this fabulous account of Xanadu and all the riches of Cathay, which inspired the Europeans to sail west in order to um, reach the fabled land of Kublai Khan. Instead, they bumped into these two new continents, and uh, uh, and Marco wrote the book. (laughs) you know, in prison and been captured by the Genoese and is dictating it um, to his fellow prisoner who's writing it in a form of uh, uh, French. uh, um, And um, uh, the uh, book was written so Marco could recover the fortune he lost on his return from China. Uh, He and his dad and uncle lost all their money just making their way back to Venice. And so Marco was put in the position he had to write a bestseller if he was going to recover his fortune. And then um, and that book became the, uh, the model for the traveler's accounts. And all sorts of uh, fellows to, tried to live off it by imitating. Um, famous one is Jeffrey de Manville, who is the original accidental tourist. He probably never crossed the English Channel, but wrote a marvelous account in the 14th century about all the fabulous animals and lands and and rulers in the East. Um, It's a complete ripoff of um, Marco's book. And it was considered an equal uh, to Marco Polo's book. And um, both were read by Christopher Columbus, by the way, Um, who took them seriously as accounts. Uh, So... Um, that's a nice aside. <laughs> the way we lived before copyright laws. Well, that, that, that's how Kublai Khan's remembered. Um, and, um, uh, and he's remembered, of course, um, in um, you know, Coleridge's poem and in uh, the Xanadu in Citizen Kane, uh, the famous uh, movie about William Randolph Hearst. Uh, they, um, the Mongols themselves looked to Genghis Khan as their great national hero. And Kublai Khan, for all of his achievements, um, is despised as an outside conqueror. Yet, in my opinion, he was the one who reunited China after 400 years of disunity. And one wonders if China had would ever have been reunited into a single state had it not been for Kublai Khan, uh, because historically, the pattern was for China to divide into three or more warring empires uh, once a central empire um, collapsed. And um, you you have the South, the North and the Northwest, all of them very distinct regions with distinct histories. Um, And Kublai Khan um, managed to put all of those under his control and hand that empire down to his successors. And it sparked a national resistance that expelled the Mongols and led to the building of the Great Wall as we see it today. Mm. The the masonry walls tourists go to visit were really built in the aftermath of the Mongol conquest. It was almost an emotional response that never again would these invaders come into the Middle Kingdom. Uh, We're gonna build the most formidable walls on the the earth to, to prevent that from ever happening again. Whereas the wall system before the Mongol conquest was much simpler. It was mm. uh, made of rammed earth and ditches. It was not a continuous. It would be very similar to the type of walls the Romans built in Europe. They were very comparable types of construction. Uh, they were not massive ma- masonry walls uh, at all. Um, they were improvements on the natural features In large sections of the border which were deserts or mountains, would not be fortified at all. You just need to patrol them periodically. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: they so, fairly impossible.
1: So Kublai Khan also inspired the Chinese to build one of their most important tourist attractions. So <laughs> yeah. to give them credit oh, for that. It's going I always top. the Roman Empire built the tourist industry for the Mediterranean world between 70 AD and 235 AD so this is comparable (laughs) that's
0: a good point actually Um, I know this is going off a little bit but a friend of mine sent me a meme the other day of the the end of the Great Wall of China where it goes into the sea and he put and they said this is the Great Wall it was built to keep the Mongols out and underneath it it's got a comment saying dude why didn't the Mongols just get in a little boat and just go around it (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem of all walls, unless you patrol them and man them um they're not very effective <laughs> I mean, you you um um you living in the u k know that if you've at all studied the Hadrianic or the antonine walls uh in in britain um these were you know set up with all sorts of forts patrols um the Celtic tribes to the north of the wall were on the roman payroll um uh you 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 they they're very costly to maintain, and uh, uh those of my compatriots who think that they can build this uh absurd three thousand mile wall across the yeah. southern part of the United States um are just fooling themselves there's no way you could man and uh you'd have to tell Americans to shoot women and children, and most Americans really don't don't. Take kindly to murdering um, uh, people that to whom they see no, you know, no threat yeah. from. I mean, <laughs> you're, it, it's just a ridiculous political issue. Um, but um, I live in a country with many silly political issues. Uh, I'll just That's, leave right. It uh, That's
0: right. So do I. E- England's going a bit crazy there. That we've got the same thing, but it's not the wall; it's the English Channel. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We need to patrol the entire Channel coast. Yeah, that didn't work uh, when the Germans. Uh, I mean
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, wait until you see your tax bill after one year. <laughs> of that. And, and that ought to finish that idea quickly. And, and, and that would, you know, that's, that's something that I, I've considered in the book is these, uh, there's only one instance, uh, and that was the um, Tong Emperor Taizong in the 7th century, who actually conquered uh, nomadic heartlands which would be the Eastern steppes then occupied by people known as the Kirk Turks or the Sky Turks. Um, and these were. this was the first Turkish Khanate. Um, and it was incorporated actually into the Chinese empire. But this Chinese emperor was exceptional. He grew up in Northern China. He loved riding and hunting. Uh, he could inspire many Turks to take service with him. Probably a third of his officers were actually Turkish nomads, and he preferred the nomadic life of uh, of his Turkish subjects to the, the very, very studied life of the Mandarin bureaucrats who ran the empire. Um, and um, he was the only ruler um, anywhere in Eurasia to conquer significant regions of the steppes and rule them directly before the advent of firearms. Um, and... When he died, uh, his successors really could not maintain this system and the Turkish Khanates became independent again. Um, And uh, what developed in the later Tang period was this symbiosis, according to some um, uh, Chinese historians, that uh, the Turks furnished um, soldiers that were vital for maintaining the power of the later Tang emperors uh, since they faced repeated rebellions uh, over high taxes, uh, oppressive administrators, uh, corrupt lawyers—seems corrupt lawyers was a um, a, um, a a couple uh, adjective and noun. Since the first lawyers are known in ancient Sumer, you know the earliest laws we have from the Sumerian city-state of Urkagina is all oh, the lawyers are corrupt. Um, you know, I, I I should be I should be kind about them because when you need a lawyer, they're really vital. And I've trained many a future lawyer in my classes. Um, but I will invoke um, Samuel Johnson's comment that I, I never heard anything else said of this man, but he is rumored to be a lawyer. So <laughs> uh, significantly enough in modern Turkey, there aren't any lawyer jokes. I've told lawyer jokes in Turkish to my wife who is Turkish and she just doesn't find them funny. Um, because the lawyers are um, part of the um, political system and they use Roman law, um, you know, civil law. Um, it wouldn't affect be a bench trial uh, before a lawyer, uh, an uh, avukat as they would say in Turkish. Um, and so um, that joke doesn't translate into modern Turkish um, in any case. Um, uh, and um, well, that's a little far afield, but um, The success of Taizong is exceptional, and it um, is one that um, um, really was astonishing to me, um, what an extraordinary ruler he was. And you come to admire some of these Chinese emperors who could think in such long-term strategic uh, terms in dealing with nomads. And Taizong was was clearly one of the most successful, if not the most successful. We don't quite have a counterpart like that in, in Europe in, uh, or even in the Middle East. Uh, he, he's an extraordinary rule.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com/slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, uh, Talking of extraordinary leaders, um, we couldn't really talk about nomadic no uh, again. We couldn't really talk about nomadic um, Kingdoms and fighting without mentioning um, Attila the Hun. Uh, how successful? I mean, it was a stupid question, but how successful was he?
1: <laughs> well, you you raise the question of one of the great ifs of history, and to some extent, I always see Attila as uh, the great if. Um, if he had not died prematurely, it would have been in his mid forties when he burst this blood vessel by overindulging in a winter festival when he had married this German girl and had um, invaded Italy a second time and claimed his Roman bride, the um, Empress Honoria. Um, He might have created some kind of composite state of the Western Roman Empire and his Hun Confederation, uh, quite similar to such states you found in North China where nomads would rule part of the steppes and control the Northern Chinese cities. Uh, the most successful were the Northern Wei dynasty, uh, who were nomads, who um, really were important for the development of Buddhism in China. Um, that might have been a possibility, but instead he died. Uh, the Western Empire was so compromised and the Hun attacks had driven so many Germans into the Roman Empire that the German tribes ended up being the successors of the Western Roman Empire and established the nation, the kingdoms that evolved into the nation states of Europe today. Um, He tipped the balance decisively uh, to the Germanic tribes. Um, However, um, at the time of his death, these Germanic peoples had long been in contact with Roman institutions. Um, A number of the tribes had embraced a form of Christianity uh they were devoted to christ they just couldn't quite get the 10 commandments straight uh but at least uh, you know when they entered towns they would respect churches and carried out more what was blackmail rather than plunder um and uh, they had, they perpetuated roman institutions particularly the western church which became the basis of of, me, of the medieval west um but um Attila might have changed the destinies of Europe. It could have looked very differently uh, if the Western Empire had been perpetuated um, by a Hun uh, conqueror. Probably you could assign the word high king or "khan" to Attila as his title um, and uh, his Roman empress. And if they had children, well, they may have inherited this state. I mean, it's all speculation, But clearly, he had posed for the first time to the Roman Empire, which happened to be divided into two empires at this point, um, an existential threat. And the Romans had never faced that before from a nomadic peoples. Their previous experience with nomads in Central Europe had been Rome always had the upper hand. Uh, These tribes were relatively small. They were easily um, divided among themselves. Uh, to fight civil wars, uh, settle old scores. They could be incorporated into the Roman army as auxiliaries or they could be put on payroll to patrol the frontiers. They did not um, have any experience with a vast confederation of tribes headed up by a charismatic ruler who had access to horse archers plus many of the Germanic tribes of Central Europe who were his subjects. And Attila was a quick study. He had many Roman captives uh, who could uh, build uh, engines of war. Um, In the 440s, when he attacked into the Balkans, his army is capable of capturing cities to the shock of the um, the Emperor Theodosius II and his court. Uh, Theodosius was hardly uh, much of an emperor. Um, The government was really run by his... um, older sister Leopulcaria who called the shots and um, and he himself was content to practice his calligraphy in his in his pen very lazy ruler didn't even read his own Theodosian code most likely um, <laughs> you know, just, the, the, the Roman rulers of the of the fifth century AD are really remarkable remarkably undistinguished lot um who's, who who really were not up to the task at all and um and so um it would be people at court who would dominate and in the case of the western emperor, it was uh, the um the general aetius uh who controlled foreign policy and had an alliance with attila until 450 when attila uh, broke the alliance uh, to claim his his um Bribe the Empress Honoria. Um, she had appealed to Attila for reasons that are very unclear. Uh, she was going to be married off to this boring senior senator um, to keep her from scheming against her brother, the Emperor, Valentinian III, and so she wrote a letter to Attila a pleading for, for aid and sent a ring and Attila assumed this was a marriage proposal and then demanded Gaul and Spain as the dowry. And <laughs> even, even a, a cravenly Emperor Valentinian couldn't agree to that. <laughs> no, it's pretty extreme. <laughs> you know, the Western. They'd lost Britain and uh, Africa was in the hands of the Vandals at this point. So what little was left outside of Italy was going to be given to the Huns. And, um, and so he refused. And Attila... Uh, whose ancestors came from the eastern steppes, in my opinion, uh, took this as the greatest insult because he was waiting for such an offer. Mm. (laughs) You know, on the eastern steppes, the Chinese emperor always sent a princess to marry the most charismatic ruler of uh, the most important nomadic confederation. Um, This was a sign that he had made it politically. And Attila yeah. was probably waiting for this. And then he gets the proposal and then they refuse to honor it. I mean, this is a war of, uh, this is a matter of honor. and Absolutely. He, you know, from his viewpoint, I got to invade Gaul and ransack the place.
0: (laughs) It's what I'm owed.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, he doesn't understand that, you know, Roman citizens don't marry non-citizens and particularly non-citizens who are not even Christians. Whereas for the Chinese emperor, it's no problem. You know, you have a harem, you've got plenty of daughters you can hand out to rulers uh uh uh, he just didn't understand roman matrimonial law that's all
0: (laughs) Uh, and thus collapsed the roman empire due to uh, problems with
1: translations (laughs) uh, yeah i mean the next year invades italy and there's absolutely no army to oppose him because the roman army at this point is made up largely of german mercenaries or Mm. allies as they like to call them they're essentially mercenaries And um, Visigoths and Franks will fight to defend their homes in Gaul, but they're not going to die for Italy. And so the road to Rome was open to him. He could well have marched on Rome and taken it. And Mm -hmm. this famous meeting um, with senior senators and Pope Leo I, um, they dissuade him from marching on Rome for reasons that are unclear. And Attila retreated, probably assuming he would come back the next year um, and face very little resistance um, and on, for the benefit of the Roman court, the Western court, he died unexpectedly, uh, but there were no effective forces to oppose the Huns march on Rome they could could have occupied the city pretty easily. I would love to know what Leo really said to Attila in that meeting. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: you must have offered him a massive bribe or something. It's the only thing you could think um, of.
1: Attila would have been impressed by the stature of Leo, who's the first Roman pope of great rank. And he wrote the famous tome, or letter, in 449 that became the touchstone of orthodoxy for the Western church and it was accepted at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. That's the first time uh, a Latin text was accepted as canonical um, in these great councils. And he is remembered as um, the most um, important pope in making the papacy, the real master of the city of Rome, um, that the Roman aristocracy had particularly uh, held out for paganism for a long time, but by his pontificate in the mid fifth century, um, the aristocracy had gone Christian and the great Roman families now provided the popes and and Leo came from such a family and and starts a line of very, very uh, impressive uh, paper figures um, who made Rome um, the the capital of Western Christianity uh, to a large extent. So Attila would have been impressed. He would have been worried about his logistics, malaria. There had been poor harvests that year. Food was in short supply. He had wasted a lot of time besieging and capturing cities in northern Italy, uh, particularly the city of Aquileia, which is the predecessor of Venice. Um, In Milan, he saw a a great mural uh, in the imperial palace and commissioned it to be repainted with Himself in the center, and uh, the Western and Eastern emperors um, rendering homage to him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, he he understood. It, it, it was always great going to his camp because um, we have very good descriptions of it by um, uh, an Eastern Roman diplomat named uh, Priscus, mm-hmm. and um, and this was recreated by a uh, Hungarian national painter. Uh, in the 19th century, the Feast of Attila, where Attila is seated in the center um, on very modest fare. He's using wooden dishes and all because he gives all the plunder out to his supporters. He's surrounded by his supporters at a great table. And then at the far ends are the eastern and western envoys who are allowed you know, give him permission you, to be at the edge of, of the great table. Uh, and you know, Till is just lording it over these envoys from uh, from the courts of Ravenna and Constantinople. Uh, and he uh, he always would deal with uh, Roman envoys when they were signing treaties, as happens first in 435, where the Roman envoys would appear, and he would st- stay on his horse with his supporter looking down and dictate terms from his voice. Uh, uh, <laughs> you guys are just, you know, one step above peasants. Now go back uh, to your master and tell him, this is what the tribute is this year. <laughs> and uh, he is very good at staging these events, I'm sure. <laughs> Because when when you talk about the
0: Huns, everyone thinks of oh yeah the, the the unbridled barbarians. But he's really got a handle on statecraft and appearing that projecting that image of I'm in charge, I am the leader. You know, I will sit on my horse. You're down there. I'm above you. And it's that's something you wouldn't put with barbarianism if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, well, these barbarian images uh, particularly gain currency. Well, they're, they're common in the Middle Ages. Uh, and the idea of the Mongols being Tartars, you can trace that image of steppe nomads going back to Gog and Magog, the legends of Alexander the Great uh, building this great wall that uh, shut out um, the unclean peoples, the nomads, and they will come at the time of the apocalypse uh, announcing the end of days and Alexander was credited of building this wall somewhere in the Caucasus in either the Durbent or the Dariel Pass, um, two passes we know Alexander never reached in his conquest, but it's a good story. Um, but when we look at the historical record, you realize they are extremely um, adept uh, at learning uh, from their neighbors and need to. Um, they also have an incredibly good knowledge of of the world because the development of the Silk Road, uh, probably in the third century BC, that linked essentially the Mediterranean world to China across this vast caravan uh, route, um, crossed large sections of Eurasia where the nomads dwelled, and these people traded with the merchants along the way. They hired out... Uh, their warriors as guards. They um, uh, also, um, later on in the 10th century, the Turks bred camels that were ideal for this route. They made an enormous amount of money uh, providing camels to the caravan trade. Uh, the nomadic peoples learned technology. They learned different religions, such as Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Manichaeism, uh, by contact with the merchants. They, they have a very steep learning curve They are not a bunch of uncouth barbarians. Uh, And in writing this book, uh, several of these um, nomadic peoples, notably the Khazars in southern Russia and the Uyghurs, who at the time dwelled in what is now Mongolia, not in the western reaches of China, where they ended up in the ninth century, uh, both established their own um, empires, confederations, uh, on the steppes Uh, uh, adopted um, a religion um, brought by merchants, the Khazars, at least the upper classes, embraced Judaism. The Uyghurs uh, embraced this religion known as Manichaeism that emerged um, in Mesopotamia in the third century AD, Um, both monotheistic creeds. Uh, They uh, had their scribes invent writing to keep records, and they promoted trade and ran very successful uh, nomadic empires on the steppes. Um, this is not what the stereotype would expect um, not. at all. Um, and they're, as I say, they con- have constant contact with merchants and missionaries. They're well aware of the people around them. And if you assume the position of Genghis Khan, He's at the top of the world looking around, he sees Europe to the far west, Uh, that would be to his right, Uh, to the left is China, in front of him would be what we would call the Middle East, and he knows a lot more about the geography of the world than the contemporary rulers of these sedentary civilizations. Um, And he's able to obtain an enormous amount of information from missionaries and merchants uh, or tribes, uh, tra- warriors who had served as soldiers in the armies of these states. And he's able to frame a very successful strategy in his, his campaigns because he's so well-informed.
0: Yeah, because yeah, uh from a European p- perspective. We're very insular. We're, we're, we've almost got this, and it comes through to the British later in the 19th century and even up to now, this kind of arrogance of, well, we're the center of civilization. These mm-hmm. people are just what what do they know but because they're nomadic and they've got access to so much information and they're willing to listen to all this other information they're much more informed than than we are in the west
1: yeah and um um uh, being one of your american cousins uh we inherited from our british cousins the same arrogance <laughs> americans are sometimes quite astonished that people don't speak english and yet can be very intelligent, you know uh, Americans are often uh, very, very poor at learning other languages and, and understanding that a language is an interpretation of the world. Nomadic peoples uh, did know several languages um, mm-hmm. and they had a strategy of of um, speaking their own language, usually a Turkish language in the Middle Ages but were able to communicate in Iranian or Arabic or or even Chinese uh, because it was necessary in order to conduct trade. And it was a great advantage to speak the other's language. Uh, Hmm. We know Attila the Hun, to go back to Attila, he had um, um, uh, uh, officials excellent in Greek and Latin. And I suspect he knew enough colloquial Latin and Greek to communicate when he wanted to. And yeah. At meetings, he would feign ignorance of these languages and would be listening to what the Romans might be saying among themselves um, without giving away the fact he understood it. And he yeah. would work through translators. Um, this was probably typical of many nomadic wars. Um, the founder of the Shuang um, uh, Nu Empire, uh, Modu uh, Yu. Um, he, he commissioned his officials to create um, a script based on Chinese ideograms to express his own language uh, so that he could keep records. Um, mm-hmm. So they're not a bunch of untutored uh, illiterate barbarians. You you get these images in textbooks of the 19th century. There's a famous one done by a, a French um, uh, artist that Got into these national Czech uh, textbooks uh, showing Attila the Hun invading France. You know the pitiless conqueror, the barbarian. But but um, he, they they really are far more sophisticated than uh, most people would think. And writing this book was a way of correcting that image. Um, yeah. Many scholars know this, but in the general public it's understandable they're they're not involved in these you know very learned and sometimes um, um difficult to follow debates uh about linguistics archaeology whatever and so what I try to give is a plausible picture of what these people were like uh, and uh and how we can appreciate them and realize that they were an important link among the civilizations of Eurasia. Mm. Um, Without the Mongol, the Pax Mongolica, as I like to call it, um, gunpowder might not have reached Western Europe and triggered uh, the gunpowder revolution that changed the world. Um, um, It it took the Europeans um, to create the artillery that they could put on ocean-going vessels, but without that technology, they wouldn't have had those weapons and those mm. weapons changed the world. Um,
0: and yeah, giving, um, coming back to British imperialism gave us uh, the edge over three continents.
1: Of course. Um, the thin red line of, uh, I mean, the British could produce the most effective soldiers because they perfected the firing system, the platoon um, um, form of firing on concentrating on targets. Uh, And uh, there's lots of good examples of that. Um, Knows book spoke on on, on tactics of the 17th and 18th century as two volumes are one of the best examples of how the British uh, line of fire um, was the most successful. And um, the Americans, contrary to the images that they claim, that you know we stood behind trees and shot the Brits. Really, the only way the Americans defeated the British is by creating a European-style army, the Continentals, that could mash the British in a, in a, in a set battle, uh, such as at Essentially, you, you have to adopt British tactics and perfect them to that level if you're going to have any chance of defeating them.
0: Yeah, so von, von Stubing, I believe, was the German, yeah. another another type of hun who uh, came over yeah.
1: to uh, Oh, Frederick the Great, yeah, one of my favorites. <laughs> 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 they sandbagged every, you know, his, his father was, uh, the great elector sandbagged every every tall man he could find for the guard. They all had to be six foot and taller. Um, I think they sandbagged an Italian priest at, at mass. <laughs> I don't know what I this <laughs> bodyguard. Um, but um, yeah, the um, again, the the transmission of that information also uh, making a paper, uh, the use of paper money, which was a Chinese invention going back at least to the Song Empire, was very successfully used by Kublai Khan, um, backed up by silver uh, to extend credit and specie and it was introduced into the Middle East uh, by the Ilkhans, that is the descendants of Huwago. It eventually was abandoned, but the notion of paper money, um, all sorts of medicinal uh, medicines, uh, drugs, uh, food, uh, got exchanged uh, across Eurasia to the Mongol peace. Mm. Once the horrors of the conquest were over, Uh, Trade resumed, and the Mongol khan's had every reason to maintain the trade. uh, Absolutely prospered off it. Uh, Now, the way they waged war, and this has been pointed out by many, many writers and as as well as readers, uh, was horrifying, Uh, even by the standards of the age. uh, The Mongol way of war was was brutal. Um, There may have been no Geneva Convention. Usually, the defeated were enslaved. But the massacres of populations on a wide scale uh, was intended to break resistance. And it came out of the nomadic uh, traditions of warfare when clans clashed on the steppes. Defeated were essentially wiped out because the victors didn't have the means to support those extra mouths. Well, you apply this policy to Chinese cities and you get massacres approaching you know, genocidal levels. Hmm. And these charges have been raised against uh, uh, Genghis Khan and his uh, sons and grandsons, Pamelaine, the last emulator of Genghis Khan, and even Atul the Hun, because uh, this is the way warfare was waged on the steppes. It was brutal. Unless you surrendered immediately, all bets were off. They took yeah. the seat and they did what they wanted. And even if you surrendered, the terms were, were harsh. Uh, they would deport craftsmen, people who had useful skills. They would uh, plunder the city. Uh, large numbers of men would be taken into military service and used as cannon fodder to assault the next city. Um, and that, and that's when you got terms. <laughs> I mean, you surrender without opposing the invader. Um, so by the standards of the age, um, these nomadic war- conquerors waged war more brutally than their contemporaries, and their contemporaries were not nice guys uh, to the defeated. I mean, uh, read some of the stunts Frederick II pulled in Italy, you know, catapulting civilians into the city to, to break their will. Um, these are mm-hmm. fellow, uh, uh, hardly uh, anything like um, the modern rules of war, and unfortunately, those rules are all too often um, honored in the breach rather than the observance. Um, so that's the dark side. And that contributes a great deal to the images of the nomads as savage people, as uh, beyond the pale. But you have to again, understand that the warfare on the steps was as brutal as could be, just like the conditions of living on those steps. Yeah. It's about survival. Who are used to killing and, and surviving under the harshest of conditions. Mm. Um, and it's to some extent a reflex. This is how we wage war. This is yeah. what we uh, They don't try to justify it. It's just how it is. Um, sobering thought. Absolutely. And
0: sobering thought to end on. Um, this has been really. Really in depth, we've, uh, we've covered a hell of a lot of ground. I think the questions went out the window, <laughs> but it's been uh, it's been fantastic oh. talking to you. Um, would you mind uh, just reminding everyone uh, the title of your book and when it's available and where they can grab oh, it from?
1: It will be released in August. Uh, Bloomsbury Press is uh, publishing in Great Britain and a division of HarperCollins in the United States. It's called Empires of the Steppes: um, How the uh, A History of the Nomadic Peoples. Um, I Forget the subtitle to it. Um, how
0: uh, they, how the shaped, modern, how they shaped the
1: modern world. That's it, how they shaped the modern world. Um, and um, I wrote a large part of it when I was um, in um, isolation during the pandemic.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, think I, I had a lot of fun writing it. My wife is Turkish, as I alluded to, and I would uh use mongol words to her and she'd look at me in complete distaste and say that's bad turkish you know <laughs> uh, when i would uh she didn't recognize kumish the fermented drink at first until she turned it into turkish kumish a k instead of a q and she said you know she just thought you know that's bad turkish what are you what, what are you speaking um uh the languages are close um and yeah. Uh, they're, they're related. They're distinct, but they are from the same language family, and uh, and it's uh, it's it's it, it makes tur- uh, the Mongol words very uh, accessible to me, uh, knowing Turkish and being in a bilingual marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure sometimes what language we're speaking, and I often wonder. Uh, this is what happened on the steps, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, yeah, uh, uh, my my wife's first attempt in English was uh yemek uh in input I," um, which I understand perfectly well. My my soul, I am putting the food in the refrigerator. Um, it's a combination of Turkish and English words using a version of Turkish Turkish grammar, um, and I'm sure uh, many among uh, many a step family had a mix of Iranian. <laughs> and and turkish or mongolian and turkish in the way they communicate with each other
0: <laughs> uh, that sounds like my german where it kind of breaks up into different different things but um also what we'll try and do is we'll get your book on the um hang on I'll just pause my guy on the motorbike goes yeah, by it should drive. be
1: available by august 1st i think uh
0: yeah we'll um we'll get it into the uh online history hack bookstore uh um bookshop.org um that way, with every sale, the podcast gets a small amount of the money and you get more money than if it went through a popular rainforest uh, named um, oh, website. Okay. That if I name, I will get targeted by the next Jeff Bezos missile. Did I say Jeff Bezos? I meant some guy.
1: <laughs> well, my wife thanks you because she'll claim the royalties. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, uh, but thanks for coming on and talking to us today.
1: No, I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs>
0: let, me just, let me just stop recording.